The news continues. We're going to hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime, live from Rome. All right, thank you, Anderson. I am Chris Cuomo, and benvenuti tutti a Roma. We're here for the G20. You know it. It's the annual meeting of top countries to discuss world economic crises. President Biden is on the big stage, hoping to show a new face to allies who are desperate for answers and also a little bit to save face. His Democrats continue to delay historic legislation. As you see, Air Force One just landed, uh, and we're going to take you through the latest reason why there's no deal yet. But don't forget Biden's high-stakes meeting here with the Pope. There's a big controversy swirling around both of these men, the issue of reproductive rights. Now, that meeting and what message is sent specifically by the pontiff may mean as much back home for Biden as anything that happens here. But the buzz, certainly about the Democrats, still getting in their own way on spending bills that will do more for more people than we have seen in a generation. Still describing the bill by the price tag, which is now $1.75 trillion. My feeling, that's part of the reason that public support for these programs isn't louder, because the programs themselves are very popular. But price tag politics, dicey, especially with independents. The real challenge for Biden are the people in his own party. And he once again implored Democrats to do the right thing. No one got everything they wanted, including me. But that's what compromise is. That's consensus. And that's what I ran on. The agenda that's in these bills is what 81 million Americans voted for. So let's get this done. Will they listen to President Biden? Can Speaker Pelosi deliver the House? You know, she may want to tap back in to the mother tongue of Italian. I can hear Pelosi looking at her people and saying, Eh, basta con questo. E ora di fare un accordo. Enough. It's time to make a deal. Instead, another self-imposed deadline has come and gone. No vote tonight. And no real reason for Pelosi to keep setting markers that she has to know her party's progressives are not in line with. Listen. I know that is something the speaker wanted. I have signaled for days that we simply did not have the votes for the bipartisan bill without the other bill, the Build Back Better Act, which has 85% of the president's agenda that we really care deeply about. But our members have been saying for months that these two bills need to be, need to go together and that we need to have the legislative text. We have the text, and I really think uh, it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be quick here um, for us to pass both these bills through the House. Now, we keep saying, you know, AOC may get the hype. There's the power. Jayapal is the one who speaks for these progressives, and they need to be listened to within that party. Trust issues. Jayapal doesn't trust the holdout senators, and they don't trust the House. Hey, why should these people be any different than the rest of us, right? Does anyone in this country trust anyone or anything anymore? It's our biggest issue. And how will all of this look to parties here as President Biden arrives asking them to trust that America is back as an ally. Perfect guest to discuss the inside and outside elements of this. Here we are in Vatican City in front of the big basilica. Two familiar faces from La Familia. Phil Mattingly and Jim Shudo. It's Italy, so you got to talk with your hands a little bit more, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, hey, good. That's, that's good. So, inside game. Yep. The deadlines from Pelosi. Yes, we understand if you don't set a deadline, nobody does anything. But how many times do they want to keep missing their mark 
before it starts to really color the perception of a, what should be an historic victory. Yeah, I think this would be the last time, and this is probably one too many. There's a reality on Capitol Hill. It's the oldest adage in the book. Nothing focuses the mind like a deadline. That last deadline they missed, they made more progress in about a 12-hour period in terms of the negotiations than they had in the six weeks prior. Today's deadline that they missed, they were able to set a top-line number. They were able to set a framework that everybody seems to be behind right now. But the idea of bringing the president to Capitol Hill, making clear the stakes, making clear the urgency, saying explicitly from Speaker Pelosi behind closed doors, don't embarrass the president, and then not being able to deliver on that, it's a problem. It's a problem for perception. It's a problem for power. But I think more than anything else, it's a misjudgment. The idea that you can force progressives to crack, the assumption that, yes, progressives have laid out their position, but if we bring this weight up here, they will have to give in. And progressives have made clear time and again, we have our position. We are not moving off of it. When we get there, we'll deliver. So that's the dynamic is waiting for the progressives to accept what's happening. Or is it um, bouncing the ball to the other side, that it's mansion and cinema, and will they move? Like, who has to move last here? Look, it's both, and I think that's part of the problem, is they both want specific, both sides want specific things, both sides don't trust one another. One House Democrat texted me earlier, it's not a lack of trust issue, it's a no trust issue at this point in time. Cinema and Manchin refused today to explicitly back the framework, explicitly say that they were going to be yes votes, but progressives have said for weeks now, they want both bills, they want the text of both bills, and they want both bills to pass at the same time. The assumption has been that they would just have to move off that if the president asked them to. Never they seen a party fight making history in a way that will be a generational change for more Americans than we've seen affected in our lifetimes by government policy. But here we are. Now, so here comes Biden, comes off the plane. Uh, this is him showing the face to the world. America is back. He wants that message. What does he need to do and how does what's happening at home affect that. Listen, the president himself articulated this as he made his case to lawmakers uh, privately, saying that it is damaging to me and the country to arrive here empty-handed. He's arriving empty-handed in effect, right? And that's short-term and long-term. Short-term, you know, climate change is a big issue on the agenda here at G20. And of course, when they do the UN Climate Summit next week, uh, he needed those commitments from this legislation to say, hey, this is how we're going to meet our commitments to cut CO2 emissions. Short term, longer term, Biden also articulated that this is about soft power, right? We have to show the world that democracy works. Democracy can solve problems because, of course, the message from a China or a Russia is that authoritarianism works, right? We, we can dictate from the top and we can solve problems better than the U.S. So on both those counts, for now, Biden has lost those arguments. Now, to be fair, when you talk about what is in this, if they get through the framework, framework this is more than the U.S. has ever spent on, on climate you know, measures in its history. We're talking about And they're way ahead dollars. of a lot of other countries who will be president. They are. And again, there's a lot of fuzzy math here, as you know, on these mm-hmm. things. But, but if these tax incentives for solar panels, electric vehicles, and so on uh, work and, and are applied over time with executive action, you could conceivably cut emissions from the U.S. by, by about half in nine years. I mean, so... If you do get there, then you've made progress. The trouble is he's arriving here for those docs without that progress. Mm. The reason, uh, and it's not just because we're sitting here in front of St. Peter's Basilica, but, uh, and it doesn't matter that I'm Catholic, the issue of reproductive rights is becoming a stronghold uh, on the right fringe. We're going to spell that out for you later in the show. What have you heard from the White House about what is the point of purpose behind meeting with the Pope? Is it simply because the president's in Rome? I think it's something, you know, it's interesting. White House officials, we've known G20 was going to be here now for several months, actually for longer than that, but since the president took office, certainly. And there was no question 
when the president landed in Rome, he was going to meet with the Pope. He goes to church every single Sunday. Uh, he is a Catholic. He's made clear he views himself as a devout Catholic, but he's also very protective of his faith. Uh, he understands that when it comes to abortion, when it comes to reproductive rights, that he is in a different place than the church. That is a problem, obviously, particularly with certain Catholics, with conservative Catholics, with frankly, where the Vatican sits on this issue. There's no question about that. I think when you talk to White House officials, they make clear two things. One, this isn't something the president is discussing on a regular basis with staff, his faith and kind of his view uh, of the church. Two, what the Pope represents, what Pope Francis represents on several other issues, very much aligned with where the president is, mm -hmm. talking about climate change, talking about poverty, talking about inequity. Those types of things, I think, are the issues the president wants to discuss with the Pope and hopefully take a unified message out when you talk to White House officials. It's very interesting, Jimmy, because, I mean, you understand these uh, issues very well. And the Pope said things about President Biden mm. that the clergy in the United States doesn't agree with. And it's very interesting to see what he'll do this time uh, when he meets. Because, you know, interesting distinction. You're right. The Vatican's position, the dogma on reproductive rights is clear. The church, though, is the people. Mm. And if you measure Catholics, they're not different than the rest of the American population in terms of favoring reproductive rights. How big a deal is this for Biden? The, the, Pope Francis, too, his, he, he, if you want to apply politics, he's a Big Ten Catholic, right? I mean, yep. his approach to reproductive rights, to, to homosexuality, right, is, is to say we, we welcome. We're not about excluding. We're about growing the church. And Love, mercy, message. he keeps saying. Just focus on that. And by the way, if you go back to another hot polit political issue in the, in the U.S., you remember when Trump was talking about building the wall, Pope Francis is saying we're, we're about taking walls down, not bringing them up. So, so you have a lot of overlap between Biden and Francis' view of the faith. But again, as a Catholic myself, I mean, we, we see this uh, division very much in the church in, in the U.S. And oddly enough, it's interesting that the leadership of the Catholic Church in the U.S. arguably more right than the Pope, right? You know, more, I'm going to say more Catholic than the Pope, but you know, more conservative Catholic than the Pope on this issue. And that's why you've seen this public disagreement with Biden, public disapproval of his position on reproductive rights. But it's very interesting to see clergy mm -hmm. go against a sitting Pope. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how it plays out here. Thanks, it's good to share history with you, as always. Gentlemen, appreciate you. We'll be together. <laughs> Grazie mille. All right, so Phil Mattingly, Jim Shuto, two of the best. You'll be seeing them all through the G20 coverage, and for good reason. Now, I want to turn to somebody who can take us inside uh, what is going on with the Democrats, a key progressive, okay? What is going on? But I'll tell you, Ro Khanna is a twofer for us tonight. He did something today with his co-chair in a committee with Big Shot Oil executives we've never seen. What? Next. The only question standing between President Joe Biden and history, legislation that, first of all, no matter left, right or reasonable, the policies, you guys like them better than six out of 10. It will help more people in more ways than we've seen in a generation. But it's not happening. Why? Because of the progressives or to senators or leadership. Let's ask somebody who is very much in the mix, Representative Roe Kana, Deputy Whip for the Progressive Caucus. Congressman, always a pleasure to have you, and I appreciate you giving straight talk and dealing in good faith with this audience uh, for weeks on this issue. Thank you. I've been uh, honored to be alone. So, uh, Congressman, to cut to the quick, how long will you guys stand in the way of making history with this legislation, especially when it comes to blowing your own deadlines? 
Chris, you're absolutely right that it's historic legislation. I think we're almost there. Within a week, we will be there. You know who was pitch perfect today was the president. He came in, he touted both the Build Back Better bill and the infrastructure bill. When people started chanting, vote, vote, vote today, he didn't say that. He held up his finger and he said, both, and he said, we need to get this done over the next week. He understands where the party is. He understands clearly the divisions. And he took a prudent approach of how to bring us together over a week. Is the history being lost on the Progressive Caucus? If you were to get half of everything that you originally asked for, you would be getting more on climate and literally a laundry list of people's most pressing concerns that we haven't seen in a generation. You're right, Chris, and that's why there hasn't been any real progressive who's come out and said we're opposed to the 1.75 top line. Uh, I thought the president was so eloquent, particularly when he spoke about education. This is the first time in America we're going to have universal preschool. Every kid is going to get to go to preschool. We're going to invest in childcare, and we're going to have the biggest investment in climate ever. The progressives are on board. What is the issue? The question is, let's just get it written so that it doesn't get further diluted uh, in the Senate. And, and I think that's a legitimate concern to wait a week, make sure all 50 senators are on board and get this passed by the end of next week. What is it about you Democrats that makes you love <laughs> price tag politics? The only thing that starts to dampen public interest and appreciation is the price tags. You see what's been happening with independent voters. People get sticker shock. Why not just keep focused on all of the gives instead of the get here, you know, in terms of what the price tag is going to be? You're right. You know what I've been saying? This is less than 2% of our GDP. We're a rich country, and for less than 2% of our GDP, we can give every kid a shot in this country. We can have childcare, we can have climate investments, we can give seniors hearing aids, we can give more people an opportunity to go to community college. And the fight between moderates and progressives is do we spend 1% of our GDP or 2% of our GDP? But ultimately, the role of government to do good is what's at stake, and it's gonna be historic when, when we deliver. Uh, what is your level of confidence in these two senators, and really specifically the one who's been quiet, Senator Sinema? Uh, do you believe that uh, she is playing above board? I do today, because I had colleagues who I really trust, Joe Naguz, uh, Pramila Jayapal, they sat down with her. Uh, they left uh, pretty assured that she wants to make sure that this deal goes forward. This is the first time I felt like that, and I really trust both uh, Joe and, and Pramila. So I feel, I actually feel more confident that we are aligned on the deal. I think what is unfortunate, Chris, just being candid and with straight uh, shooting, is that we're having these negative headlines, and we're so close to doing something historic. But what people are reading about is, oh, Democrats are fighting and not delivering and missing deadlines. We've got to get past that and talk about what we're actually going to deliver, come together and start talking about all the good things we're going to do. That's, that's my concern, not whether the deal will happen. Uh, one quick follow, and then I want to get to the big surprise you gave us uh, today. You say you trust her today, which is, you know, I guess in politics, that's the best you can hope for, but not enough to vote today on the infrastructure bill. 
Well, it's not just her, it's also Senator Manchin, who I've always thought is a straight shooter, but he's out there saying, well, we're negotiating, we're negotiating in good faith. And so there's still things that have to be worked out, the details, and that is, do we have strong climate provisions? Do we have uh, dental and vision for seniors? Do we have Medicare negotiation? Now, if we just say, okay, we're gonna do the infrastructure bill today as opposed to a few days from now, uh, and then basically give uh, Manchin and Cinema a lot more power in finalizing that deal. Why would we do that? Why not just all be part of the process, get a deal that everyone feels good with? Uh, I don't think that's at the end of the world to wait a few more days to have that process. Mm. Uh, now look, you know, I've been saying all along, you guys are uh, delaying history. Whatever you get here, you're going to be giving people more than they've seen in a generation. Um, that is not surprising to me. What was surprising to me is what happened today in your hearing with big oil executives. Uh, first, I want to play for people a little bit of what your angle of accountability was here, uh, because it wound up leading to a huge development. Here it is. You're funding these groups, and they're really having an impact. You know, they're, they're, they're spending millions of dollars in Congress to kill electric vehicles, and they're spending millions of dollars against the, 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 the methane gas. And you could do something here. You could tell them to knock it off for the sake of the planet. You could end it. You could end that lobbying. Would any of you take the opportunity to look at API and say, stop it? Any of you? Will you commit to, could you commit, any of you? So, my take on it was, Congressman, that they just were going to take their beating and go home. You know, let's just, let's just let this guy stop talking and get out of here. And then you and Congresswoman um, Maloney met and came out and said, you know what? We're going to subpoena you for documents on these uh, third parties and where they're getting their money and what this messaging is about because you're not being straight with us. Um, where did that move come from? And what do you think about swinging that biggest stick? It was the first time that oil executives have testified in front of Congress under oath, Chris. Can you believe that? They've never come before Congress on climate disinformation before. And I was actually giving them an opportunity. Here they are, they come out, they say, they're for tackling climate change, they're for the Paris Accords, they're for electric vehicles, they're for a methane tax. And then they are funding a group, $10 million Shell is putting into it, Exxon is putting into it, Chevron's putting into it. The head of that group is there and I'm saying, Tell him to stop the advertising against electric vehicles. Tell him not to engage in climate disinformation. And not one of them is willing to tell him to stop. And so, and they weren't willing to admit some of the past misstatements that were clearly climate denialism. So Chairman, uh, Chairwoman Maloney and I talked and we said, we have to subpoena. We have to get these documents. Uh, we're going to get the documents. And unfortunately, it's turning out like a big tobacco moment. Well, you know, it's interesting that you make that the analog. Uh, they better hope not. Uh, but the paper has to be there. It's going to take you some time. They've got a lot of money and a lot of lawyers, but you do have the U.S. government behind you. Uh, we will be tracking this. You are always welcome to make the case. Huge implications for the American people. Congressman Ro Khanna, you are really right at the crux of some very big goings on in our government. It's good to have you. Thank you for taking the opportunity. Thank you, Chris. Safe travels in Italy. All right. New pictures tonight of Alec Baldwin. Uh, he's far from the Southwest a week after a deadly accidental shooting on his movie set in New Mexico. 
Uh, the focus of this investigation is now on two people. Baldwin is not one of them. But no one is in the clear yet. They don't know anything yet. So we have the sheriff leading this investigation. What matters and why? Next. We keep hearing the same thing when it comes to digging into what happened on this movie set with Alec Baldwin. There's no reason that a live round should ever be on set. This is make-believe. I can't even believe they still use real guns. We keep saying prop gun. These are real guns. And that's why filmmaker Helena Hutchins is dead. Detectives say no one has been cleared in the investigation. Now, that's being read by too many people as, ooh, they're going after somebody. No, they're just starting their investigation. Why would they clear anybody? There is an increasing focus, however, on two people in particular who handled the weapon and what they have told police about how chain of custody here got screwed up, because it did. Court documents reveal 24-year-old armorer Hannah Gutierrez told investigators, no live ammo is ever kept on set. Well, how can that be? Then what blew a hole in Helena Hutchins? Assistant director David Halls acknowledged he didn't check all the rounds loaded in the weapon before handing it to uh, Alec Baldwin and saying, cold gun. That is the reporting. Why did he say that if he didn't check? His quote is, he could only remember seeing three rounds. He advised he should have checked all of them, but didn't, and couldn't recall if Hannah spun the drum, meaning turned the round barrel part uh, behind the barrel where the ammo is. All right, let's bring in the sheriff leading the investigation, Sheriff Adon Mendoza. It's good to have you on primetime. Thank you for having me. Now, Sheriff, it's not fair for people uh, to be making, uh, you know, an issue of you not clearing anybody. You're just starting. Uh, it, it would be completely unreasonable for you to say that you are clearing anybody at this stage. I understand that. Um, but as you're entering into this, what are your avenues of concern and consideration? So I think obviously we want to get statements from those involved, those were that, that were closest to the incident. Again, the, the focus is on the firearm and the live rounds. The, the possible live rounds that we found and the live round that was discharged. So the focus is how that live round ended up there, who brought it there and why it was there. That's the focus of our investigation. Sure, if you say possible live rounds, uh, you don't know whether or not any of the rounds you collected are live or not? Well, right now, um, they're, they're suspected live rounds. They appear to be uh, similar to the round that was discharged by the firearm uh, by Mr. Baldwin, but that won't be determined until uh, they're analyzed by the FBI crime lab in Quantico to uh, verify that they are live rounds, but they, have, they will be analyzed and they will be sent off to the crime lab. You know, there's a, a confusing question maybe you can clear up, uh, that it's gonna take many months uh, we had some reporting before we know what killed Helena Hutchins. Why would it take so long to process uh, what happened with her? And what else could have put a wound in her like that except a live round? 
Well, I think it's clear that a live round was discharged by the firearm based on uh, the fact that it did kill Miss Hutchins and it wounded Mr. Souza. That round, that projectile has been recovered. So there's no question that this uh, live round was fired from the weapon. What makes it complicated is there's so many people on set. Uh, there's a lot of interviews to be done and there's a lot of clarifying questions, uh, like I stated in reference to why that round was there, uh, who brought it there and, and uh, what was it doing there. So uh, it, it, it's gonna take some time. We wanna have a complete investigation for the district attorney so she can have all the information and facts so she can make a decision whether uh, charges uh, are necessary to be filed. Do you believe people are cooperating fully and truthfully to this point? Well, the, the, the focused individuals have given initial statements, but again, we'd like to get these, uh, these people back and have some follow-up questions. And uh, we, we understand that uh, some of these individuals have retained counsel, and we're hoping that they'll be cooperative in the investigation, come back, clarify uh, some of the questions that we may have, and uh, help assist uh, gathering the facts for this, for the case. At this point in the investigation, uh, can you say whether or not you believe that you are um, contained within the world of negligence, recklessness, or do you believe that some of this could have been intentional? Well, it's too early in the investigation, I think, to determine um, whether those three things happened. Um, I use the word complacency, and I think that's very clear that there was uh, complacency when it came to safety protocols, uh, when it came, comes to the ammunition and the firearm. Now, whether that uh, reaches the level of negligence and whether uh, that reaches a, a criminal level, I think that's yet to be determined. It's still early in the investigation. What would you need to see to say that this wasn't just doing the job badly, this was doing it so badly that it rises to the level of a crime? Well, I think there's a lot to prove there. I think uh, it's going to be a totality of the circumstances, and that may be based on what happened at the scene and what happened uh, during the incident. But it, uh, we're going to—we may be look further than that. We may look at the history of uh, of what's happened on on other sets, um, uh, the concerns that uh, for people that were that were on the set, uh, if there were any. And we're going to uh, obviously follow any avenue uh, to determine if there were other safety protocols uh, that weren't uh, followed. So it, it's going to be uh, uh, the totality of the circumstances that obviously that we're going to be looking at. And just quickly, Sheriff, were you surprised to learn that they're using real weapons um, and, and blank ammunition and dummy rounds still in this day and age? You know, um, I wasn't surprised. I guess my question is, is why? And why did they need them? And why um, was there a, a fully functional firearm there? There may be a reason, uh, but I'd like somebody to explain that to the, to the investigators in reference to why that is absolutely necessary. But in my mind, uh, there's, there should be no reason that there would be live rounds on the set. Sheriff, appreciate you, and I wish you good luck uh, in getting answers that are complete and quick. Thank you so much. All right, be well. So we are here in Vatican City. President Biden is now here as well. He just landed when we started the show. He's going to be meeting with Pope Francis tomorrow. Reproductive rights 
is heating up as a big issue. You know what's coming in our Supreme Court back in America. How will it play here? We have something very interesting. There's a stark division between the man who runs the shop behind my shoulder and conservative bishops in the United States. And it is playing out in ways that you may not even know when it comes to reproductive rights. So where is our country on this issue? Where are Catholics? Where are other Christians? You're gonna learn something about what this issue is really about. We're gonna have the Wizard of Oz, and then we're gonna have somebody who is a player in this game. Next. President Biden is going to make history on Friday. He'll be only the second Catholic president to meet with a sitting pope. Now, last time it happened was nearly 60 years ago. 1963, JFK, Pope Paul VI. It was also controversial then. Kennedy was still overcoming anti-Catholic sentiment. And he would be now perceived as taking orders from the pope on how to run the country. Thankfully, that kind of stigma seems passe, at least I hope it does. But President Biden's trip isn't without its own controversy. The issue of reproductive rights is heating up in America, and it is becoming a fringe political cudgel. So now you have an interesting division happening within the Catholic Church. Bishops say the president shouldn't be allowed to take Holy Communion because he supports women's reproductive rights. But it's not what the Pope says. Now, where are the people? Less than half of Americans say religion, Catholicism or otherwise, is important to them. What should we make of this meeting and what this issue means to Americans? That's why I brought in the Wizard of Odds on this, Harry Enten. Not a theologian, but he is a statistician. (laughs) And he can help us understand why this is much more about politics uh, than it is about faith at this point. So, Harry, let's look at just where we are in this issue, and then keep getting deeper and deeper into the types of people. Sure. I No, no one would ever confuse me being a theologian. A statistician, I think you're right. Look, here's the situation. If you look at Americans' position on abortion rights, what you see is, number one, the vast majority of Americans support it. Uh, 61% want to keep it uh, legal at least most of the time. You also can look at whether or not they want to overturn Roe v. Wade. 70% say no, they don't want to overturn Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade. Now, let's get a little bit deeper, right? And we can look at different religious blocks because I think that really sort of gets it that this is a majority position who want abortion to stay mostly or always legal. Look at this on your screen. Mm -hmm. What you essentially see is, with the exception of white evangelicals, just 20% of them want to keep abortion mostly or always legal. Catholics at at 56%, they do want to keep abortion mostly or always legal. Uh, Even white non-evangelical Christians, 60%. Black Protestants who can be quite conservative, 64% of them want to keep abortion mostly or always legal. And and obviously, not a big surprise, the religiously unaffiliated, 83% of them want to keep abortion mostly or always legal. Now, uh, do you see this as kind of architecting what this issue is becoming, which is not so much about religion in general, but about fringe right politics as evidenced by the evangelical white community. I think so. You know, look, one of the things that's really sort of changed on the abortion issue over the last 30 years or 35 years 
is whether or not it's moral, right? There were a lot of people who used to believe that abortion should stay legal, but they didn't view it as a morally acceptable position. You know, you go back to 1987, you see just 26% of Americans believe that abortion was morally acceptable. Look at that now in 2021. It's up to 47%. Meanwhile, the morally wrong stance is believing abortion was morally wrong. Look at that. It dropped from 62% down to 46%. So it's not just that Americans believe that abortion should be mostly or always legal. It's also that they're starting to say, you know, it's okay if someone should get an abortion. It's not something that should be kept hidden. And we've obviously seen that in a lot of women coming out saying that I have had an abortion in the past and it's an okay thing to do. You know, we often uh, point out to people, you and I, that you have 50 U.S. senators that were elected by less than a quarter of the country. Uh, And that when you look at congressional districts that are Republican, uh, you also see that they are evidencing uh, minorities of of populations, you know, that they're mostly white, but that they're uh, a minority. And you see it with this issue is that they're playing to a minority position on this. It's not where the country is. It's not even where most religious people are. Is it, Harry? No, it's not. You know, what they're really playing to is Republicans. That's who they were playing to. And, you know, there's still about a third of the Republican base who believe, you know, in abortion rights in one way or another. But two thirds of that base does not believe in that. And they're the ones who are driving the nomination process. And you see it in a guy like Donald Trump, right? He used to be pro-choice. He used to believe in abortion rights. That was the one big thing in which he really changed in 2016 in order to win the nomination and then win the presidency. Hmm. Harry Enton, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Enjoy Italy. This isn't just about uh, politics. Thank you, brother. Uh, It is about religion. And there is an interesting dynamic to this meeting between the Pope and the president. And here's why. Clergy back in the United States are basically saying that Pope Francis is wrong about this. Now, not only is that not their place, um, but it makes for a very interesting argument about position. My next guest is someone you know. Uh, He is a priest. He's a member of the Catholic clergy. But I also believe he became a casualty in this division between the clergy in the U.S. and their own pope. I want to talk about what the faith says, what Father Beck has said, and what happened as a result. Next. Whether President Biden should be allowed to take Holy Communion is dividing Catholics. And not just Catholics, but really Catholic clergy and their pontiff. It's a hot button issue. It's big in politics. But the implications go beyond that. Let's welcome back friend of show, Father Edward Beck. Uh, Good to see you, Father, as always. The last time uh, you and I were together here in Rome was for the conclave, uh, where then uh, Bergoglio from Buenos Aires became pope. And in fact, Father Beck was one of the only people to suspect that he may be the choice. It was a big deal. So you've always had good insight into him. Uh, what are the implications of this meeting for the pontiff and the president tomorrow? Well, I think there is some very important issues that they want to discuss. I think they talk about what's possible, Chris, and where they meet together. I mean, the coronavirus is important to both leaders. And I think Pope Francis is a little concerned that there are developing countries that haven't received the vaccine and that other countries are hoarding, hoarding it a bit. I think he's going to talk to President Biden about that. You know, the climate meeting is coming up in Glasgow. This is a pope who wrote a whole encyclical 
on the environment, Laudato Si, really important to him. I'm sure he wants to talk to Biden about that. He wants to talk about immigration and migrants. You look what happened with Haitians recently on our own borders. All these things really affect this pope. So I think he's going to focus mostly with Biden tomorrow on issues of commonality and where they can work together for change and really have some productive things happen. Do you think that uh, El Papa will take the opportunity to say, and to those clergy in the United States uh, who don't seem to like what I say, uh, remember who's number one here. If I say that uh, Biden can receive communion and I'm meeting with him now, uh, that's what you should say too. Isn't it supposed to work that way in your church? Yeah, well, first of all, it's our church. You happen to be Catholic too, so don't just call it my church. But with that correction in Not mind- Not when I'm a journalist. <laughs> I don't think the Pope is going to talk about communion with Biden at all. I think that they both know where each other stand on communion. He's going to leave it up to the Cardinal of Washington, Wilton Gregory, and the Bishop in Delaware, who will deal with President Biden with regards to that issue. The Archbishop of Washington has already said he's not going to withhold communion. So I don't think there's any reason for the Pope to get into this. And the Pope wouldn't talk complain to President Biden about how clergy are treated him in the United States, I don't think. I don't think that's what he would do with the president tomorrow. Yeah, but it does seem to be that he's been getting pushback uh, from the clergy in the Catholic Church. And look, let's let people uh, into your own individual situation. Father Beck said the exact same thing that the Pope said. He adopted the Pope's position about President Biden. Then, all of a sudden, he gets asked to no longer be in a diocese uh, that he and his order, the Passionists that he's a member of, had transformed in a year out by where I live, changed the reality for the people in that community at the church. All of a sudden, the bishop says Father Beck doesn't have to be here anymore and won't give any reason. Do you believe it had something to do with the fact that that bishop doesn't agree with what the Pope said that you repeated? Well, I think it's very likely, again, it's speculation on my part, but when the bishop visited in May, everything was hunky-dory. What a great job we were doing, I was doing, very grateful. And then I wrote an op-ed for CNN.com in June about this whole issue of Biden and communion, agreeing with Pope Francis and other major religious leaders, by the way, in this country, including Cardinal Gregory and Cardinal Dolan and Cardinal Supich in Chicago, who do not think that communion should be used as a divisive wedge. And then I went on some CNN shows to talk about the op-ed. And by August, I was given my walking papers from the diocese with no explanation. When we would ask, well, why am I not being renewed? Why can we not stay? He would say, it's simply the case. We're not giving any reason. And so I think that that was the reason, because that's the only thing publicly that was controversial that I waded into during that interim period. Mm. You know, the Pope keeps saying to the Catholic Church back in America specifically, love mercy. Focus on that. Love mercy. Don't get caught up in the rules. Don't get caught up in who's right and who's wrong. Don't get caught up in politics. And it seems that people, even the bishop uh, in, over your diocese, uh, was choosing to play politics instead of just loving mercy. Father Edward Beck, uh, you make me proud to be a Catholic, and I'm proud to have you in my life, and I'm proud you spoke the truth. 
Thank you. You make me proud, too. Thank you, Mo. Miss you. All right. Be well. There'll be a whole big bunch of us CNNers working the G20 uh, from now all through the weekend of events. I'll be here on New Day in the morning. We'll be back here tomorrow night in Vatican City. Uh, So thank you for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.